Welcome to CBS LA Uncut, where there's so much more to the story. Hello, I'm CBS Los Angeles news anchor Pat Harvey, and each week we're taking a look at a story you've seen on the news to take a deeper dive. More interviews, more insight, and more information. We're excited that you're joining us for this episode, Mind of a Mass Murderer. They tell me that they wanted to make a mark in history. You're going to be hearing from one of the world's leading experts in criminal behavior, a man who has interviewed countless mass murderers. The serial bomber, a 24-year-old white male, is dead. Police pursued him in a hotel parking lot. The five connected attacks killed two people and injured at least five others. It's happened again. A lone madman has terrorized a community, killed two people, and injured five before taking his own life in a blaze of fire. This time, it was a serial bomber in Austin, Texas. Breaking news. A horrifying scene played out at a Florida high school. He is a former student. On Valentine's Day, the madman grabbing the headlines was a 19-year-old in Parkland, Florida. He allegedly shot 34 students and staff in a six-minute hail of gunfire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. In fact, 17 of those shot died of their wounds. The suspected gunman is still being held without bail. Breaking news, an active shooter situation on the Las Vegas Strip. And last October, the nation's deadliest mass shooting to date, 58 music fans killed and almost 900 injured after a 64-year-old gunman took aim from his 32nd floor suite at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas. Nobody just snaps. It was right after the Las Vegas massacre that we reached out to Dr. Park Dietz of the Threat Assessment Group in Newport Beach. Dr. Dietz is a world-renowned forensic psychiatrist. His expertise? Decoding the minds of mass murderers. Here's an image you will not soon forget. The two windows Stephen Paddock shattered before he opened fire. Now keep this in mind. This interview was done October 2nd, 2017. We thought it unusual for a suspected mass murderer to be in his 60s. Age has nothing to do with the likelihood of committing a mass murder. The characteristics that mass murderers have in common do not concern age or race. Uh, and there have even been female mass murderers. What those who do this terrible crime have in common is that at the time they do it, they are seriously depressed, usually suicidal, and often they're angry at others, blame others, may even be paranoid, thinking others are causing their problems. Dr. Dietz says suicidal tendencies are almost universal among the mass murderers he's interviewed. Nobody does this crime unless they're willing to die that day. And in a sense, we can think of mass murder as a flashy form of suicide by angry people. But what leads a depressed person with a gun to become a murderer? Las Vegas shooter Steve Paddock's father was on the FBI's most wanted list in 1969. Producer Jerry Constant asked him about that. Is it significant that his father was on the FBI's most wanted list? It's really interesting that the suspect's father was on the FBI most wanted list, but the meaning of it is not necessarily obvious. We do know that criminality is heavily familial. 
In one study, for example, about 8% of the families accounted for 50% of the arrests. And the way that operates is typically the direct influence of the father over the children and other relatives by promoting drug use, gang membership, their disciplinary techniques, and so on. There's another line of research that indicates that one serious kind of criminal, the psychopath, is largely heritable. About 50% of the likelihood of being a psychopath comes from one's genes. Um, but that doesn't really help us understand an individual because there's so many other factors that relate to this. So the things that make a difference in whether someone who's genetically vulnerable to becoming a psychopath will or not depend on such things as how they were reared, where they loved, where they cared for, were they treated fairly, or were they neglected and abused and left to fend for themselves? That is really what makes a difference. In the case of Paddock, there was no criminal history, and he had never been flagged as a threat to law enforcement. But Dr. Dietz says that doesn't mean the signs weren't there. Typically what happens in the course of the investigation, warning signs that nobody reported to anyone are revealed and begin to be discovered. So it will not be surprising if we learn that despite being seemingly law-abiding, there had been some bad behavior in his past that was never made known to law enforcement. It won't be surprising if there were crises in his life, such as his girlfriend leaving him or some financial issue that caused him to feel less hopeful than usual. And it wouldn't even be surprising if he was mad at the noise from the concert. There are many things that will be learned as the investigation unfolds that we don't know today. Now he accumulated just a, a trove of weapons. Um, does that tell you anything? Often if someone is gathering a lot of weapons in a short space of time, and this is not some long-standing interest, it's because they fear that they are in danger and seek to protect themselves. So paranoid people often do that. But it could also be done because one had decided to commit some crime that multiple weapons might be handy for. Dr. Dietz says the plotting and planning for a mass murder can start years in advance, that it's almost never a sudden decision. The idea of anyone snapping is really very misleading. I consider it one of the leading fictions promoted by the popular press. Nobody just snaps. Uh, we know that it has never occurred that a healthy, happy person in a productive, pleasant environment suddenly, without warning, does terrible harm to those around him. It's unheard of. It doesn't exist. But. The problem is that people don't share information. And so let's say, for example, there is a man in his 60s who has been grumpy with the neighbors, who has flipped off people while driving, who has sent angry letters to politicians, who has uh, screamed and yelled at businesses that he's talking to on the phone. Where are those things reported? If anywhere, it is only in a database that isn't available to the police and that the public has no access to. But in the course of the investigation, things like that will be learned. And suddenly 
it will look like a very different person as we learn how he's really behaved for the last few years. To understand a murder's motive and triggers, investigators need to dig and dig deep. Investigators are still trying to figure out a motive. It would be really important to look at what this man has written if he does any writing. So uh, law enforcement will surely look at his uh, web history. They'll look at emails he sent, texts he sent, who's he corresponding with, who does he call on the phone. They'll begin to interview people that he's in frequent touch with to see what they've observed. All of that will give a much fuller picture and will tell them more than just the interviews of the neighbors and the close family. We begin CBS 2 News at 5 with breaking news. Law enforcement says this man, Nicholas Cruz, is behind a high school massacre in Florida. Nicholas Cruz, the alleged Parkland, Florida shooter, had a long history of run-ins with law enforcement. But his record was clean enough to pass background checks and purchase guns. Robert Ayala. Uh, is on the phone with us. He is staying at the Mandalay Bay Resort. Robert, I saw all kinds of units. There's some units Stephen Paddock uh, had no history of contact with law enforcement, and he's not alone in that regard. There's certainly plenty of precedent for people who haven't been reported for or caught for a crime yet suddenly committing a ghastly crime. And in fact, that would be true of many mass murderers, that they haven't had a criminal history, that the first known crime is the big one. So that's not unusual. Ruth then entered the Mother Emanuel Church to slaughter innocent Bible studiers. I did it. So, for example, Dylan Roof did not have a kind of criminal history that would have led anyone to expect him to become a mass murderer. And the same thing is true of a great many of the mass murderers in U.S. history, that if you look at their past, you could stretch to try to find some story that makes sense of it. But the story that really makes sense of it is that that day they didn't want to live, they were angry at other people, and they were able to carry out an attack they thought would give them notoriety. So the notoriety matters. The notoriety matters almost as much to mass murderers as it does to assassins. We are learning more tonight about the shooter's troubled past. Those are two crimes for which Thinking of the news reports is part of the fantasy that precedes the crime. And for this reason, Dietz wants news organizations like ours to be mindful of just how we report these tragedies. Mass murder has been the flamboyant man's favorite form of suicide. And every time we give them massive news coverage, we remind all the other depressed and angry and paranoid people that that's a way to go out in a blaze. It's marketing. It's marketing for mass murder. Normal people, of course, won't be moved to do it. They'll just be sad or traumatized. But people who are at risk of doing a mass murder can be moved to action by the news of it they watch. We asked him his theory on why the Las Vegas shooter did what he did. Why was he possessed to shoot so many people he'd never even met? I think he was willing to die or wanted to die. I think he had his eye on the publicity this would get, maybe even the body count. And um, we may never know all the details of that. I say this based on others who've survived the attack and whom I've had a chance to interview. They tell me that they wanted to make a mark in history, that this was the way to 
have some effect in the world, that this was a way that people would know their story and how so-and-so had screwed them over. Dr. Dietz says mass murderers often have fantasies about how their own death will play out. They often imagine that they will have a chance to watch the reaction of society and the world and the press and their families to their death and to what they've done. And they may believe that for spiritual reasons or not, but it's a very common set of beliefs that somehow they'll become aware of what goes on after they die. Deet says without a good understanding of what drove the last tragedy, it's impossible to stop the next one. One of my um, big concerns always is prevention. How can we prevent? Now within an organization like a school or a workplace, we can spot people who are at risk of doing this long before they do it, preferably before they even make threats to do it. The public doesn't have that advantage. None of the interventions that might prevent the attack occur. The only one that I think there would be considerable public support for at the moment is devising ways in which mental health services could be provided to those who need it without causing further problems in the lives of the people who don't really need it. Uh, and we're a long way from that. What we've done for 60 years is dismantle the mental health system very badly, remove needed resources, and that's why the seriously mentally ill are in jails, prisons, and homelessness encampments. I don't see a quick fix to that. Now, I'm not saying that the shooter in Las Vegas was mentally ill. We don't know that. But for the prevention of lots of harm to people, we really need to repair the mental health system. Short of a mental health system overhaul, which could take decades to happen, what can a potential target do? What if you find yourself face to face with a gunman? Is there any way to stop a tragedy in its tracks? Ordinarily, someone who is on the verge of an attack of this kind is in some kind of personal crisis. That personal crisis can stem from anything, uh, even trivial things. Often it's about relationships gone bad or work problems or financial problems. When the person's in a crisis, it's unpredictable which terrible thing they may do next. It might be a simple suicide, it might be a murder-suicide, it might be a mass murder-suicide, or many other crimes. If the right individual were able to have the right conversation before the triggers pulled, of course it's possible to interrupt this. And the biggest issue is showing the person that they have options besides the attack. Because the suicidal person develops tunnel vision and doesn't see other options for how to be happy or how to survive. They have physical or psychological pain that seems intolerable and unavoidable, but there's always a better option. Sadly, there isn't always someone around to explain that or to help the person understand that. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week with a new episode of CBS LA Uncut. The stories behind the stories you see on CBS2 and KCAL 9 News. 
Don't forget to subscribe and hey, tell your friends about us.